Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Christopher Frank about his book, Workers, Unions, and Payments in Kind, The Fight for Real Wages in Britain, 1820 to 1914. Chris, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay, uh... I am a 19th century British historian. Uh, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Manitoba, where I've been working since 2003. Uh, Before that, I did my graduate studies at York University uh, under the supervision of Doug Hay. I I worked on uh, his master and servant project, which he uh, did with Paul Craven. I completed my PhD there in 2003 uh, and the project kind of that my current work kind of grows out of, uh, things that I began there, uh, at York. I, I was wondering if you elaborate upon that. What was it that led you to focus specifically upon this topic, which, which I must confess as a British historian myself, I, I, you know, I didn't know as much about as I felt like I should have after I finished your book, but it is one that really, you know, speaks to a lot of elements in, in, in British history. Yeah. Uh, Well, my first book, uh, which was uh, my dissertation at York University, uh, in that I studied the resistance of workers to the penal sanctions of employment law, uh, uh, a body of laws known as master and servant. Uh, And these master and servant laws were characterized by a double standard of sanctions, which treated employees' breach of contract as a criminal matter uh, for which they could be imprisoned or whipped or a variety of things. Uh, and treated employers' uh, breach of contract as a small-scale civil matter. And in studying uh, the 19th century resistance to these laws and and the penal sanctions of employment law, I came to kind of uh, realize one of the insights uh, was uh, was how, as a matter of law, employees were held much more tightly to the terms of their contracts of employment. Uh, whereas employers enjoyed a lot more flexibility in terms of fulfilling their promises to workers. This kind of disjuncture between the abstract theory of freedom to contract and how it was experienced uh, on the ground and in the courts. Uh, And in collecting these kinds of cases of master and servant, I began coming across a number of forms of the practice of paying workers in truck or the practice of paying workers uh, in goods rather than currency, Uh, because frequently this was a way for an employer to evade uh, the agreement, the contract, uh, by providing uh, an employee with goods at an inflated value uh, and thereby reducing the amount of real wages that they were paying. And as I got into this, after the publication of my first book, I, I decided that I wanted to study truck further and kind of expand upon this. Uh, and so I, I soon found uh, the, the common form of truck was an employer compelling an employee to receive or spend part of his or her wages at a company owned store. Uh, this is frequently done by uh, uh, having um, long pay periods and permitting employees to take advances on wages earned but not yet paid, provided they spent those wages at the company owned store on goods that were inflated in price. Uh, And in practice, this meant workers received less value for the wages they were promised uh, and employers exercised greater control over their lives. Uh, And then as I got into that, though, I soon realized that there were a variety of other ways in which employers raked back wages that they had promised to employees. Uh, I found uh, the prevalence in kind of marginalized and sweated trades of disciplinary fines that were often very arbitrary. Uh, I found um, 
employees being compelled uh, to pay for damaged products, uh, uh, you know, and the employer would judge when a product was damaged uh, and take that out of their wages. Uh, and in many cases, employers would also deduct from the wages of employees what we would consider some of the ordinary costs of doing business, uh, providing heat, light, standing room in the workplace, uh, uh, deducting from workers' wages the materials that went into the products that they produced. Uh, so I came to this new project to explore uh, the prevalence of these practices and also the variety of ways in which uh, employees and unions uh, and uh, government inspectors uh, sought to reduce or eliminate them. What you're describing in the book is not so much a, a single campaign. And, and that's one of the things I thought was very interesting was the complexity of it, because you, you begin with the legislation that was passed uh, in 1831, I believe it was, that, that you know, supposedly addresses this problem. And, and, yet you, and then you show uh, you know, how on one level, the, 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 the question of what it, this legislation did from a legal perspective, and then also the, the, the challenges of enforcement, and, and how this seemed to be a problem that just persisted throughout the 19th century. And defeated, you know, successive efforts to address it. And, and you get into just, you know, what some of the issues were in terms of why the legislation was successful, you know, why it was so difficult to address it, and how it really persists, you know, even beyond the period that you're talking about in your book. Yeah, the 1831 Truck Act uh, was passed um, uh, really uh, through the efforts of Edward Littleton, uh, who uh, was from Staffordshire, a politician from Staffordshire. And he had been exposed uh, to, uh, he had witnessed a lot of the, the uh, practice of truck because Staffordshire is one of those parts of the country where uh, truck was quite common uh, in a variety of industries. Uh, and uh, in the late uh, 1820s, of workers in a variety of trades, as well as retail shopkeepers, began asking for legislation. Uh, and Littleton was able to secure the 1831 Truck Act really over the strong objections, uh, kind of liberal political economy objections of Joseph Hume, uh, who argued that people should be free to make their own bargains, whatever they entail. Uh, uh, you know, um, you know, if a worker agrees to accept bacon for their wages, it's not for the state to intervene and, and, and that sort of thing uh, made that argument. Uh, Littleton was able to secure uh, the 1831 Truck Act and the 1831 Truck Act uh, listed, uh, made it illegal to pay servants or artificers in a variety of listed, specifically listed trades in anything except for the current coin of the realm. Uh, and if a worker was paid in truck, uh, that worker could find two magistrates. Uh, the two magistrates had to not be in the same trade as the employer and the employee. Uh, and the magistrates had the authority to pay any any wages that were paid in truck uh, to force the employer to pay those wages in money and to find the offending employer uh, as well. Uh, and in the 1831 Truck Act, there was a list of specific things that employers could deduct from an employee's wages that, that, that would not count uh, towards wages, you know, defining uh, those wages. Uh, and the 1831 Truck Act uh, uh, ultimately is a, is a failure, although uh, one of the things I argue in the book is how we interpret whether or not a law is a success or a failure. In some cases, we have to take a slightly broader look at the legitimating functions of the law. Uh, but in terms of its practical use in the courtroom, uh, many of the difficulties uh, in the law, one is that it was employee initiated uh, so that if an employee, uh, uh, you know, uh, an employee would have to make the choice to prosecute his or her employer. Uh, and of course, this would almost certainly result in losing your employment and being blacklisted uh, in, the, in the region, which is a significant disadvantage. Uh, another disadvantage uh, in using the 1831 Truck Act is that although magistrate summary justice offered affordable and ready justice, uh, it still was expensive because magistrates, especially in coal and iron districts who were not in mining or uh, iron working uh, were not easy to find. And so in some cases, you know, uh, an employee might have to travel to find uh, um, 
magistrate who heard the case. Uh, and then finally, also, uh, many magistrates were just ideologically hostile towards regulatory legislation. Uh, they felt that this was an interference with freedom to contract. Uh, many magistrates treated uh, uh, an employee suing under the truck acts as committing a type of fraud, uh, that, that the employee has already been paid in kind, and now the employee is seeking to be paid a second time in money. Uh, and, and so they were also uh, resistant in that way. And so as a result, uh, uh, at, the, at the magistrate's level, the law was interpreted uh, as narrowly as possible, uh, and they were loath to inflict significant fines on offending employers. Uh, and in the cases that got appealed to the higher courts as well, uh, higher court judges strongly influenced by classical liberal political economy and freedom to contract ideology uh, were also very hostile to this legislation and sought to interpret it in the most narrow way possible uh, that kind of narrowed its scope and narrowed definitions of coercion and, and made it much more difficult uh, to enforce in that way. Uh, so throughout a lot of the 19th century, uh, labor would mobilize periodically in different places uh, to try and secure stronger laws uh, that would strengthen the prohibitions uh, against truck. Your description of, of that process to me was so fascinating because it, it you really, I, I thought, capture a lot of that dilemma very well and how even if they do, you know, even if they're willing to uh, take a, uh, you know, take action under law and even if they can find magistrates who are reasonably sympathetic, uh, you know, it, sometimes the, the fines simply weren't worth the amount of of, of, of legal effort necessary to uh, get a, 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 a judgment, uh, a favorable judgment in the end. Yeah, and especially, too, because for many of the employers, especially at some of the larger uh, coal and iron works in Wales uh, and uh, Staffordshire and, and Western Scotland, uh, the financial benefit employers receive uh, from these company stores are so substantial uh, that uh, that the fines inflicted by magistrates are not going to discourage them necessarily. Uh, and also... Um, it became kind. It became rather easy for employers to disguise truck uh, uh, with kind of plausible deniability. So, for as I suggested earlier, having a very long reckoning period, but permitting employees to take advances on wages earned but not yet paid, and everybody would understand that you needed to spend those advances in the company store, or else you'd be refused future ones. Uh, but the employer could deny this, uh, uh, you know, could deny this arrangement. And, and this kind of compulsion is really difficult to prove. And so one of the stories in the book is, is the disjuncture between legislative intent of parliament, uh, how the law operates on the ground, how the higher courts interpret it. And in some cases, in the later chapters, uh, the way in which the regulatory state can sometimes manipulate the law uh, to serve different purposes as well. Uh, one of the other things that you uh, talk about in these early chapters that I thought was really fascinating was the opposition to truck that comes not from the employees, but from businessmen outside uh, the the you know within the community who who are who are out uh, who are not necessarily part of this direct employer employee relationship because as you point out they have this vested interest they have these businesses but if they're not you know part of the 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 company store then basically they're finding that their uh, that their uh, traffic their business is being uh, taken from them because it, these employees are being forced to shop in the in, in the company stores because that's in effect where the credit is and that's where the employer is is providing all sorts of incentives and nudges in order to get them to to to, uh, to, to uh, patronize them. Yes, um, in the. <clears throat> In the early anti-truck prosecution societies, uh, these societies in Staffordshire and Wales uh, that attempted to bring the 1831 law into force and, you know, offered to, to look after workers who were displaced for coming forward and fund prosecutions and lobby for new legislation, uh, retail uh, 
retail shopkeepers were very prominent uh, in this and provided a lot of the funding. Uh, they make strong economic arguments that that uh, uh, company stores take money out of circulation uh, with the expansion of truck. Uh, it, it reduces the middle class and rate payers and, and uh, is bad for local economies. And, and they're, they're forceful about this. Uh, and employers, on the other hand, who pay in truck, uh, uh, sometimes use uh, this paternalist argument to justify paying workers in truck, saying that the real people to be afraid of are retail shopkeepers who get uh, employees into debt. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that employees buy in debt uh, uh, and therefore, you know, ensnare them and that sort of thing. And that working class people are not as good at managing credit relationships as their metal, middle class uh, contemporaries. And therefore, uh, truck is a service provided by employers uh, uh, to keep them out of the clutches <laughs> of these kinds of things. In, in Scotland, uh, there was a process of small debt collection known as the arrestment of wages. Uh, which allowed uh, a shopkeeper uh, before a payday to come go to a small debt court or magistrate's court uh, and get or a sheriff's court and get an arrestment claim that would force an employer to hold the employee's wages and give uh, above the amount that was determined necessary for subsistence to the shopkeeper. And this is really inconvenient for employers because these arrestments would all land on payday and that sort of thing. Uh, and so uh, there was a movement in Scotland to modify the arrestment of wages to make it less exploitative. And it, shopkeepers argued, well, if you do this, then there's going to be an expansion of truck. And at the same time, there was a campaign to uh, uh, have tougher truck laws. And the truck master said, well, if you do this, you're going to have more arrestments of wages. And so two exploitative systems for supplying workers uh you know, got to stay in place because they could argue the elimination of one would result in the growth of the other, you know, rather than eliminating both through shorter pay periods. So when is the when do you see the first efforts to try to uh, modify or, 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 or change the law in, in substantive ways? And what is the fate of those efforts? Well, <clears throat> There's a couple of them. There's one in the 1850s, the early 1850s, after a substantial, there's a South Staffordshire Anti-Truck Association, that, which is a pretty significant effort uh, to use the law, to bring the law into force and prosecute truck masters uh, in Staffordshire. They expend uh, between 600 and 800 pounds uh, and I think secure around 200 convictions. Uh, uh, bring the law into force. Uh, but after three years, um, they're not confident that they've made much of a dent in the extent of truck. Uh, because, it, you know, like, as I said before, with small modifications, the employer can avoid prosecutions. The fines are not substantial uh, as well. And so uh, they uh, began agitating in Parliament uh, for legislation uh, that would um, increase the penalties uh, uh, as well. And in the 1850s, uh, uh, this legislation founders, uh, in part because of, as I said before, two powerful arguments in Parliament that are really actually the arguments uh, that are very consistent against government intervention against truck throughout its history. Uh, the first argument is uh, the classical political economy freedom to contract argument uh, that it's an inappropriate use of state power to intervene with people's making their own bargains, uh, that, that workers and employers should be able to reach their own agreements about the method and timing of wage payment. Uh, and it's not for the state to intervene in this way. Uh, and uh, and the, the argument is that if truck is really a grievance for workers, uh, workers will find employers who don't pay in truck. Uh, and this, of course, ignores a great deal of legal and practical reasons why it's not always easy for an employee to simply pick up and find other work elsewhere uh, that I go into in the book. Uh, but the second argument uh, that is kind of contradictory that was made by employers who were implicated in the truck system was this paternalist argument 
that argued uh, that truck was good for workers uh, because it allowed employers to exercise a form of sumptuary control over employees. Uh, that in particular, it would prevent uh, male employees from drinking their wages and that the company store enabled wages to get into the hands of the working class wife. Uh, there's a real kind of gender domesticity uh, element on both the pro-truck side and the anti-truck side. Both sides seem to agree uh, that in a well-run household, uh, the wife runs consumption and which system of wage payment better enables her to do that is a source of debate. Uh, and also throughout the 19th century, there's a great deal of debate about what system of wage payment uh, has the impact of different systems of wage payment upon uh, the consumption of alcohol, especially with male workers. Uh, but the kind of peculiarity, the kind of paradox of these two arguments, which were effective to keep uh, uh, anti-truck legislation at bay in the 1850s, uh, is the <clears throat> is that you have this argument that on the one hand, workers should be entirely free uh, to make their own uh, contracts, their own labor contracts in the labor market. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they should not be free to spend their own money, uh, that they shouldn't be uh, completely left alone to navigate markets and consumption, uh, these kind of contradictory uh, elements. And, and that's uh, what actually one of the things I thought was really fascinating about that was was just how, you know, they were contradictory, but at the same time, they appealed to such a, a wide a swath of, of of political thinking at that time. You had the paternalistic argument, which appealed to many Tories, and you had this ideological argument, which you know probably you know warmed the hearts of a lot of people that were reading classical liberal theory or, or embracing it. And and how you know it didn't matter; they were contradictory. They were both equally by by you could peel off enough people who might you know into opposition to it, so that you could effectively shut down change. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I'll, and um, in the 1870, in some ways, uh, with the emergence of so-called new model unions, uh, they kind of lean into these arguments a little bit uh, in ways that also prevent um, legislation from passing. Uh, in, in the 1860s, uh, there's an emergence of the Trade Union Congress. Uh, and some of the larger unions that uh, in labor circles, it's a little bit controversial, but they're referred to as new model unions, these larger amalgamated unions of skilled workers uh, that charge high dues and provide benefits to their workers. Uh, and rhetorically, they try to avoid uh, strikes uh, and they, uh, their leaders adopt conciliatory rhetoric towards employers. Uh, and their leaders also work very hard uh, to project respectable notions of masculinity uh, to try and demonstrate political maturity and uh, and uh, worthiness of citizenship, uh, you might say. Uh, and one of the more prominent of those people is the leader of the Scottish miners, uh, Alexander MacDonald. Uh, and in the 1860s, uh, he works very hard at a parliamentary strategy. Uh, to try and win uh, legislators over uh, uh, to uh, creating tougher truck laws. Um, and he's actually able to win over the editor of the North British Daily Mail, uh, this uh, newspaper man named William Cameron, and he undertakes an extensive investigation into the prevalence of truck uh, in Scotland. Uh, and he goes into great detail about the, how exploitative it is. Uh, uh, and he really kind of undercuts a number of prominent arguments that had been made against truck. And, and this, this expose is published uh, in the summer of 1870. And it gets put into pamphlet form and sold. And it gets picked up by the Times. Uh, and members of parliament began talking about it as well. Uh, and it leads to a truck commission in 1871 that is the most, uh, one of the most thorough social investigations of the era. Uh, they, they interview uh, nearly 600 witnesses in, in uh, 10 different locations, I think. Uh, they ask, uh, I, I might be wrong, I, they, I think they ask over 45,000 questions of these witnesses. Uh, they ask questions to miners, miners' wives, mines inspectors. Um, uh, uh, ownership, uh, um, a variety, uh, the wives, a variety of different individuals. Uh, and uh, in the final report of the truck uh, report 
is kind of remarkable <clears throat> because Alexander had been seeking uh, the weekly payment of wages in the current coin of the realm with as few deductions as possible. Uh, and the report mostly endorses that. Uh, the, the report doesn't say much about deductions from wages, but it endorses the weekly payment of wages uh, and discounts a lot of the paternalist arguments uh, uh, as well. And, Go ahead. Oops. Oh, uh, uh, and um, but it also uh, and it also addresses the question, why don't workers who are paid in truck vote with their feet? Uh, and it does this by kind of adopting some of the rhetoric of the new model unions. Uh, it's, it divides workers into provident and improvident workers. And it says those provident workers, those respectable men worthy of citizenship who are members of trade unions, uh, they do actually only work for money playing employers and they don't seek advances on wages and they can manage their money uh, uh, sufficiently to avoid these things, but it's uh, the more dependent workers uh, have no choice. Uh, they're not able to leave their employment and, and go elsewhere, and they're dependent upon borrowing against future paydays. And these are the workers that are exploited by truck. And uh, in addressing that kind of political economy argument, however, you kind of undermine yourself by leaning into the paternalism argument and, and giving. Um, the uh, giving legislators the opportunity to not pass uh, a law. Uh, but as a result of this 1871 Truck Commission, um, the Trade Union Congress is able to convince uh, the government uh, to put forward a legislation uh, that would have greatly strengthened uh, the truck laws. Uh, it would have expanded uh, the truck laws. It would have increased the penalties. Uh, uh, it would have uh, also enabled workers uh, to get a substantial portion of their wages weekly uh, as well, which would have been very beneficial. Uh, but the legislation was killed. Once the legislation gets introduced and passes its second reading, uh, employers come screaming to the government uh, and the, empl uh, the government has to walk back its commitment to the workers. Uh, and uh, over the strong objection of the Trade Union Congress, uh, the legislation uh, is amended, and then the Trade Union Congress asks Parliament to just drop the legislation instead. Uh, but after that, you begin to see more working class members of the Trade Union Congress getting elected to Parliament uh, as well, that, that they're beginning to kind of question the benefits of the lib lab relationship in some cases. Yeah, it was one of the uh, parts that you you mentioned that I thought was fascinating, which, which was how you start to see greater discussion, you know, right after you have the passage of the of the eighteen sixty seven Reform Act. And as you point out, that's not a coincidence. You know, you start workers are starting to get the vote, and so you can't just simply uh, you know have the employer's perspective. You have to have that worker's perspective as well. And yet, the way you you know is you. Know, the, the the citing of the legislation you're talking about 1871 the committee you're talking about uh, it always seems it it's never seems to be a particularly high priority of the governments when they're coming in it's uh, in 1886 uh, the, what you describe and I'm getting ahead here is it, it's inherited from the the liberal uh, it was not, uh, the the 1897 act about how it's basically inherited from the, the the liberal government because in effect it you know they got they got to it late in the game and 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 so it gets carried over and so you know the you know the new home secretary finds he has to he has to deal with this issue and and the way he deals with it ultimately proves to be very unsatisfactory because it's something that isn't really high on his radar screen either. <laughs> Yeah, uh, governments are very um, reluctant to legislate in this matter. There is a pattern uh, amongst a lot of the attempted truck legislation uh, as it they oftentimes begin as kind of private member bills uh, and the government reluctantly picks it up. Or in some cases, uh, it's necessitated uh, from the uh, fat later on, the factory inspectorate uh, uh, that encountering such practical difficulties, uh, so many practical difficulties that the government is kind of compelled against its will to pick up this legislation because it's quite politically unrewarding uh, because there's such a gap between capital and labor on what's acceptable here. Uh, employers 
want the least intrusive legislation uh, that that that, you know, uh, the the smallest amount of possible regulation uh, uh, possible uh, affecting the fewest number of workers uh, where workers want uh, truck uh, workplace fines and deductions to be entirely eliminated. Uh, and so it's very hard to bridge the gap. Uh, and one of the things that that, you know, with that 1896 piece of legislation is um, you were talking about the 1876 Act. Well, I'm sorry, the 1867 extension of the franchise. Well, after 1884, <clears throat> uh, the government in 1887 and 1896, uh, Tory governments are kind of anxious to demonstrate to working class voters that they're capable of addressing their concerns. Uh, and after the 1896 Act, uh, Tories were astonished at how little gratitude they got from workers <laughs> because, uh, uh, you know, they, they passed this law that they thought put some uh, restrictions on the ability of employers to fine or deduct worker uh, deduct wages for damaged work. And workers believed that these things should be entirely outlawed. And many of them mistakenly believed that under the law, they already were illegal. Uh, and so it's kind of you have this peculiar situation in uh, in 1897 where there are a couple of by-elections uh, that the Tories expected to win and did not win. Uh, and the press blamed it on defections from working class voters uh, who were angry about the passage of this truck act that, you know, the Tory government had intended uh, to be a benefit on that front. Uh, so it's not uh, a politically rewarding area in which to legislate. Uh, and so very frequently uh, uh, the government comes to it only reluctantly. That, that was one I thought was particularly fascinating because you describe how as part of the uh, 1896 legislation that uh, fines now had to be openly posted and how workers suddenly are interpreting this as, oh, now you've legalized fines and, and you, you've now we, you basically they see the fines as an outgrowth of legislation when it's designed to have a bit more honesty about them. And so it ends up backfiring in the face of, of, of uh, the, the, you know, ends up having the opposite intent and, and really, you know, angers the workers. The, those placards are, are quite uh, interesting. Yeah. Because of, you know, suddenly it, it, this big coat of fines appears on the wall. Uh, and it's interesting uh, in, um, I talk about in Belfast, uh, you know, the, this law is applied and uh, these placards with lists of fines go up in spinning factories and it leads to a gigantic strike uh, in Belfast. And there's tales of uh, female workers tearing the placards off the wall as they walk out <laughs> to go on strike. And, and uh, you know, eventually they're able to negotiate a reduction in the number and the amount of fines. Uh, as well. Uh, the placard was a late amendment in the original bill. They wanted uh, uh, fines to only be legal if they were part of a written contract between the employee and the employer. Uh, and uh, many employers thought that this was not practical. And so they amended it to say, or if you prominently post a placard with fines uh, in the workplace. Uh, and some employers thought, or some advocates thought that that would actually shame employers into reducing the number of fines, that if you have to post these things, uh, in addition to making them less arbitrary, you know, seeing them on the wall, uh, some of them might appear exploitative and employers might be embarrassed about them. As, as, uh, one uh, person later on, one politician later on thought that employers should have to post their list of fines for the public to see uh, as well. And that gets to you know, the argument you're making in your book, which is that you, you're not seeing that sort of dramatic change with legislation. It's more that over time, as as awareness increases, you it does you, you know, the, all these efforts. They're not achieving that that dramatic effect, but they are having an effect. Yeah, and <clears throat> it's 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 hard because. Um, uh, the previous scholarship on truck, uh, the, the, the only British monograph uh, was written uh, by um, an economist named George Hilton. And he was writing at a time when there was an effort underway by employers in Great Britain to repeal all of the truck laws uh, because they had become rather inconvenient after the Second World War for employers. And that kind of shaped 
his approach in many respects, uh, because a major argument of his study of the truck acts, and he really only studies the 1831 truck act. He gives a brief mention of the 1887 and 1896, but his argument was that government legislation never had any meaningful impact on the amount of truck, uh, uh, that was practiced in Britain, that, that truck rose and fell according to economic factors, uh, and also uh, organized labor. Uh, uh, and, and that most certainly is true, that places where organized labor was strong, uh, truck tended to be less likely uh, to exist. Uh, but I argue in the book that this takes kind of a narrow view of the meaning of statute law, uh, that, that while truck prosecutions under the 1831 Act and even 1887 and 1896, uh, while they were not hugely numerous and they were not um they were not always uh victories in court there were a number of high profile defeats and that sort of thing uh as well that's not the only way to judge uh that the law has the power uh to legitimate certain practices uh and it was around the law uh that opposition uh the trade union movement retail shopkeepers organized uh and uh, they kind of in um, these campaigns, they greatly publicized the hardships caused by truck. Uh, and in doing this, it, it made uh, it seem less respectable. Uh, one of the things that you begin to see uh, when employers are arguing against legislation in 1871 or in the 1880s, they they're no longer really full throatedly defending truck. You know, they're saying, I deplore truck, but. This legislation is, you know, an un, uh, an unnecessary interference with the freedom of contract. You begin to see uh, uh, it kind of prefaced in this way to suggest that truck's not a reputable way of doing business. But you know, this kind of uh, going on, and uh, later on uh, with the factory inspectors and especially the female factory inspectors, uh, although their rate of prosecutions under the 1896 acts for unfair fines and deductions of various kinds, uh, they win 75% of their cases, uh, which is a lower rate than they win under the factory acts. They win 98% of their factory act prosecutions. Uh, so, and, and they endure a number of high profile defeats. Uh, but despite this, I argue that they have an impact on this by uh, the dissemination of expert knowledge. They produce these annual reports that get reprinted in the newspapers. Uh, they're in high profile cases. They're in constant communications with well-published trade union leaders uh, uh, who are passing raw statistics back and forth. Uh, they remonstrate with employers. So many employers want to have a good relationship with the factory inspectorate. And so when a female factory inspector comes to the, the employer and says that modern managements don't fine anymore, uh, uh, this begins to carry weight uh, and it begins to change practices. And so in this way, uh, the law can have uh, sometimes disguised impacts on behavior uh, um, as well, uh, and especially with the regulatory state, uh, a lot of kind of behind the scenes discussions with employers and inspectors uh, results in much bigger transformation than actually prosecuting reluctant ones in court. So we've been talking around the 1887-1896 acts. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain how those acts came to pass and how they uh, change the law regarding truck and ultimately why they proved to be inadequate. Oh, okay. <clears throat> uh, the 1887 legislation was the work of a, a liberal uh, named Charles Bradlaugh, uh, and he managed to get it passed in a Tory majority uh, parliament. Uh, Bradlaugh is a fascinating individual uh, with who had a pretty remarkable life. Uh, uh, if you're interested in the Victorian era, he's one of those kind of personalities that, that it's interesting to read on. Uh, Walter Arnestein uh, wrote an interesting book about him uh, as well. And um, he uh, became, uh, when he entered parliament, he began uh, agitating on behalf of workers uh, about the extent of uh, truck wages continuing in Scotland. Uh, uh, practices such as the uh, charging of poundage, uh, which meant uh, that when employees wanted to get an advance on their wages, 
they would often at times have to pay a 5% fee uh, for this advance on wages that had been earned but not yet paid. And so Bradlaw and others remark that these employees are you know, paying interest on money they've already earned, which seems kind of unfair. Uh, and um, a, a remarkable number of company stores still existed. And so Bradlaw uh, begins kind of agitating uh, uh, for truck legislation. Uh, and the government sends a factory inspector up to investigate uh, in Scotland, and he uncovers uh, a fair amount of truck continuing, also uh, a substantial amount of poundage. Uh, and he also uncovers uh, what is a, a growing grievance, which is unfair deductions from wages uh, uh, that workers are complaining about as well. Uh, and so while the government actually initially didn't want to publish this report, uh, Bradlaw made so much noise in the House of Commons that eventually they did have to publish it. Uh, and then the trade unions began agitating uh, as well. And Bradlaw and another MP from Scotland, uh, Donald Crawford, introduced private member bills. Uh, and then at a certain point, the government decided that it would help Bradlaw's bill along. Uh, and it would uh, satisfy this. Uh, what Bradlaw's bill uh, would do is it would expand the truck laws to cover all manual workers. Uh, and it would include workers in Ireland for the first time as well. Uh, it would entrust enforcement of the laws uh, to the factory inspectorate uh, as well. Uh, and it would... Uh, it would regulate some of the unfair deductions uh, from wages, but not all. Uh, and these, this bill, uh, because of the kind of crowded parliamentary session, uh, was frequently worked on after midnight. Uh, one of the things in going through the House of Commons journals, you know, they would pick up this bill in committee and they would be rewriting it in committee in the wee hours of the morning. Uh, and different interests were trying to shape the bill. Uh, the Trade Union Congress was trying to shape it uh, to make it something that would provide weekly pays and would provide uh, no more fines and uh, unfair deductions and these sorts of things. Uh, and ultimately, employers were able to uh, weed out uh, the parts of the bill that would have um, the parts of the bill that uh, uh, would have provided for weekly pay for workers. Uh, and so when it passes in 1887, now the factory inspectorate takes over enforcing the truck laws. Uh, but by this point, uh, workers' concerns have begun to shift towards workplace fines and deductions from wages. And Bradlaw believes that under the 1831 and 1887 Truck Act, these are illegal. Uh, he believes that uh, the, the 1831 and 1887 Truck Act requires employers to pay the entirety of wages owed in the current coin of the realm. Uh, and therefore, deductions that are not explicitly allowed for in those truck acts are paying workers something otherwise than the current coin of the realm. Now, the fact is, although Bradlaugh believes this and the entirety of the labor movement believes this, the courts have never endorsed this interpretation. Uh, and in fact, there's quite a lot of prominent case law uh, that suggests otherwise. Uh, but Bradlaugh continues to push the inspectorate to try and test these cases. And again, uh, this is another one of those examples of legislative intent versus how the law is enforced in the ground versus the high courts versus the regulatory state. Uh, and so there's all this confusion as to how the law applies to these kinds of questions. And as we move into the 1890s, uh, a kind of new variable comes on the scene. Uh, and this is in 1893 when the female factory inspectorate is created. Uh, and this was created uh, kind of as an, uh, well, actually, it had been a kind of a 20 year project, uh, an ancestor of the Women's Trade Union League, uh, its leadership had originally wanted female factory inspectors who were from the working class, who had a practical knowledge of factories. Uh, but by the time we get to the 1890s, uh, Emma Dilk, 
who is uh, a, an important figure with the Women's Trade Union League, uh, she wants there to be the appointment of middle class female factory inspectors who would have the proper standing to kind of remonstrate with employers. Uh, one of the things that was revealed in the early 1890s in the Royal Commission on Labor is that male factory inspectors had a blind spot with respect to sweated female labor, that, that uh, female employees in these marginal uh, employments uh, did not come to these factory inspectors with their grievances, uh, uh, and the, the male factory inspectors did not kind of, uh, uh, you know, ask probing questions about these women. Uh, and so as a result, in 1893, uh, Asquith, who at that point, I believe, is Home Secretary, uh, he introduces the first two female factory inspectors, uh, May Abraham uh, and uh, I think it's Mary Patterson. Uh, and um, and then uh, by 1895, there are five of them. And then on the eve of the Great War, there are 21 uh, and they're grouped into a separate female factory inspectorate, and they have special jurisdiction over female labor in sweated trades. Uh, and one of the things that's important about that is that um, the 1896, or the, sorry, that workplace fines and deductions are, mo are uh, the largest grievance and are most outrageously abused uh, in those sectors of the economy where there's a substantial portion of uh, non-unionized, marginal, female, and juvenile labor. Uh, and in fact, one of the big issues in the early female trade union movement is workplace fines, deductions for damaged work, this sort of thing as well. Uh, so these female factory inspectors began uh, traveling, and they began traveling in Ireland. They began remonstrating with employers, uh, and they began their interpretation of the Truck Act is that not paying workers the entirety of wages owed in the current coin of the realm is illegal. And so these fines and deductions are illegal. And then panicked employers go over their head and write to the home office, is this the case? Because, you know, we don't think this is the case. And what's the case law? And so there's all this kind of confusion generated. Uh, but these female factory inspectors are churning up a lot of evidence of almost extortionate deductions. Uh, as well. And so Asquith in 1895 uh, begins producing a bill that will place some regulations upon employers' ability to fine and deduct uh, from workers' wages. Uh, and then the liberal government falls. Uh, and then the Tory government uh, and the new Home Sec Secretary is uh, Matthew Ridley. Uh, he picks it up and produces slightly modified legislation. Uh, the 1896 Truck Act regulates fines and deductions. Uh, so uh, workplace fines, uh, for a fine to be legal, uh, it has to be part of a written contract or a posted notice prominent in the workplace that says what you can be fined for and the amount that will be taken. Uh, you can only fine workers for things that hurt the business. Uh, and these fines are supposed to be, quote, fair and reasonable according to all circumstances of the case, a pretty uh, phrase that is very open to interpretation. Uh, also, it says that uh, deductions uh, from wages for uh, damaged work, um, it has to be part of a written contract or a posted notice. Uh, the employer can only take uh, the estimated damage uh, that has been caused uh, by the workers damaging of the product, uh, and the amount taken should be fair and reasonable according to all circumstances of the case. And then finally, uh, for things like heat, light, materials, etc., cetera, uh, the employer can't charge more uh, than the item costs, uh, and uh, the deductions are supposed to be fair and reasonable according to all circumstances of the case. Uh, and so these laws will be enforced by the factory inspectorate, uh, and uh, employers could be fined um, for violating this. And as we said earlier, this law is popular with no one. Uh, <laughs> employers see it as a huge intrusion upon uh, their ability to run their own business. Uh, and workers are outraged because they believe that fines are already illegal under the truck acts because it's not paying workers in the current coin of the realm 
even though the courts have rejected that interpretation time and again. Um, and so, uh, as we said earlier, workers and workplaces start seeing these placards going up and they get very angry and that sort of thing. Uh, but I try to argue that during the existence uh, of this act and the years prior to the outbreak of the Great War, uh, the factory inspectorate, especially the female factory inspectorate, actually uses the act to good effect in many cases, despite the fact that the courts were very hostile to it. Uh, uh, They're able to remonstrate with employers uh, uh, about the terms of the new act. And because of the kind of regulatory nuisance of administering these fines and taking uh, deductions from workers' wages for damage, many employers began just abandoning these practices uh, voluntarily. Uh, and as the factory inspectors began to generate expert knowledge and disseminate that expert knowledge, uh, they began to kind of produce uh, uh, this narrative about modern managements and the way modern managements behave, that modern managements, managements don't find, uh, that they don't charge workers for materials that go into products, that this isn't how uh, uh, they work. And this gets picked up not only by trade unions, but by the press and even in some cases, many employers. Uh, and many of these factory inspectors hold up the examples of prominent employers that abandon fining. So, for example, Cadbury abandons all fines and deductions and reports back that it's had an improvement in workplace discipline and that sort of thing as well. So, so I argue that Although uh, the female factory inspectorate and the factory inspectorate in general has some very high profile defeats under this legislation that that really uh, are kind of difficult for them. Uh, in general, behind the scenes, they're able to actually bring about a lot of good uh, in some respects. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm completing, uh, there was a, a lot of leftovers uh, from the truck project. Uh, in particular, I'm looking at um, truck and the, uh, the truck acts in the 20th century, especially after World War II uh, and the impact on the payment of wages for workers uh, in, in those cases. I, I've also, uh, in the book, I didn't write as much about uh, the practice of truck in the Hebrides and the Shetland Isles. Uh, and I kind of wanted to say more about that as well. So I think I'll be pursuing an article uh, looking at that uh, as well. And then uh, finally, um, I was also kind of thinking of maybe looking at some of the earlier truck legislation that really hasn't been studied uh, as much. My old supervisor, Doug Hayes, looked at a little of it, uh, but I think there might still be some work to do on that front. Uh, so I might explore some of that as well. Well, uh, when you've completed that and you uh, have the next book, I will definitely have to have you back on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Well, Chris, thank you very much for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks. <laughs>